people are not complacent anymore. They're they're realizing that there's they're seeing the injustice and they're feeling affected by it and they're feeling their hearts moved by it. And so technology has enabled them to access this information and to feel like they can do something about it, even if it is just slacktivism, disliking something or posting something. It's at least informing people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Mentors Podcast. Today, we have on Melissa Jen Rowley. Melissa works at the forefront of tech, media, and social change as a predominant author, speaker, and entrepreneur. As a contributor and expert commentator for BBC News, she provides insight on business of technology and tech for good. She is also a former field producer for CNN and Associated Press Television News and a global advisor for 50 in Tech, an initiative identifying female entrepreneurs and building an inclusive worldwide network that helps them succeed. Additionally, Melissa provides content strategy and digital transformation consulting to Fortune 500s. Melissa is a passionate advocate for achieving peace through entrepreneurship and is developing projects for this purpose. We discussed a lot about global social entrepreneurship and how it could save the world. And I couldn't agree more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on Alyssa June Rally. Melissa, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. So, you know, with all of my guests, I really like to start off with their origin story. Uh, what brought you to where you are today? You can go as far back as you want. Well, I think I always wanted to be a storyteller. I always wanted to be a journalist. And what I do today is really a combination of journalism, entrepreneurship, and social impact. I've, over the years, found a way to bring all of my favorite things and causes together as one. And since I was a, at a very early age, I, I loved storytelling. I loved reading books to kids before I even knew how to read them. I would just make up the stories as I went along and look at the pictures and have the pictures tell me what the story was. And then I majored in broadcast journalism, journalism in college and um, worked for a couple of internet startups in the, in the dot-com um, bubble in like 99, 2000, 2001. And then after that, I worked in television at networks like CNN and Associated Press Television News, E-Entertainment. And I did everything from business news at the New York Stock Exchange to entertainment news, where I was interviewing celebrities on red carpets at the Oscars and Golden Globes and the Grammys and at movie premieres. And I really, really loved it, but I didn't really feel like it was my beat. Um, I didn't feel like the kind of stories I was telling either in business or entertainment were my calling. And so it was after a few incidents that happened in Los Angeles where I became completely broke, jobs were drying up. It was the year 2008, the recession just hit. And I was a freelance journalist at the time doing TV segments. And um, since there were no jobs left, I moved to San Francisco, which there were no jobs there either, but I stayed with a friend and I started writing about social impact and how it merges with technology, how technology can drive social impact. And um, through that, that's when I really became interested in technology. I had covered technology before when I lived in San Francisco years prior to that. And I didn't really think it was for me. I didn't think I was geeky enough. Uh, I didn't think I was technologically minded enough. But when I started seeing really innovative social entrepreneurs harness technology for social good, it became my passion. And from there, I started my own business. Um, that involved me consulting for social enterprises, nonprofits, and big companies and helping them with their storytelling or their content strategy, which is what we like, we like to call it, which is really just a pretentious way of, pretentious way of saying writer. Um, and from there, I, I, I met um, 
the legendary mu musician and humanitarian Peter Gabriel, and uh, who I'd always wanted to work with. And we built a humanitarian technology platform called the Toolbox, which curated mobile apps that address humanitarian issues. So it, we curated apps that would allow people to scan barcodes on products to see if human trafficking was involved. We curated apps that allow people to uh, learn how to lower their carbon footprint, apps that help refugees find resources in different locations around Europe. So a whole slew of different kinds of, of mobile tools across verticals. And from there, I realized that really to have an impact and help these kind of projects scale, that we needed to do more than just curate and write about them. We needed to actually help the entrepreneurs that were creating these technologies. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to the entrepreneurs and asked them what they needed, they said, well, we need funding, we need resources, we need connections and partnerships. So in essence, that's really an accelerator program or a startup incubator program. And I was living in London at the time and I partnered with a couple of people who had a similar idea to start a social impact tech accelerator. And we developed a curriculum um, to based on the Lean Startup Method, which is a, a method that helps startup entrepreneurs get to their minimum viable product as quickly and as, as cheaply as possible. And we did a pilot program using that curriculum in Beirut, Lebanon, where, you know, it's a really fascinating part of the Middle East and there's actually a burgeoning startup community there. And most people in the United States don't, know, don't, don't even know it exists, but I just fell in love with the entrepreneurs and their resilience and their heart and their ability to survive and create ideas based on serving their community. And um, from there, I just, I've been traveling all over the Middle East and North Africa and different parts of Europe and really diving into entrepreneurial ecosystems to see how I can how I can support them through writing and content and to see how I can help bring investors um, to those regions. Wow. I mean, first off, that's, that's an incredible story. I love how active you are. I love how global you've reached. And I love, and again, these, these stories of what you've created to help populations, it's insane and it's amazing. And the accelerator, I'm really excited about. So when you when you travel the world because i don't think some people some people um don't have a good grasp of the entrepreneurial mindset and they don't have a good grasp of why entrepreneurialism is such a great thing um for budding countries or countries in need like what we're recently seeing in the middle east and africa uh could you go into a little bit of detail on why entrepreneurship is so beneficial in places like this well i think entrepreneurs Entrepreneurship is beneficial all over the world, whether that's in the Middle East or Africa or in the Midwest, in Indiana, where you are, in Michigan, where I am right now, where I grew up. I mean, entrepreneurship is is very fulfilling for a lot of people. It's it's challenging <laughs> and it can hurt like hell when you're going through the growing pains of it. But but it is so rewarding because a I think that as human beings, we are all here to create whether you think you are an artist or whether you think of yourself as a musician or as an entrepreneur, we're born to create and everybody has creative talents, whether they know it or whether they tap into them or not. And so being an entrepreneurship really helps people tap into those creative abilities and use them. And building something from nothing is just a fantastic feeling. Um, in addition to that, if you just look at the economics, when entrepreneurs start to grow in an ecosystem that helps the community and that helps the GDP. I mean, that just, that just helps, um, it just helps the, the, the economic development overall. So um, I'm a big promoter of entrepreneurship everywhere. And in addition to that, in some places that I've been to in the Middle East, I really believe that, that entrepreneurship is the key to peace 
there because it's in some places it's not going to come from the government or the leadership because the government's too corrupt. So it's going to come from business. It's going to come from the innate um, instinct that a lot of entrepreneurs have to collaborate. You know, entrepreneurs in most places in the world don't have any problems collaborating with people across borders because they know that they need to do that in order to build and grow and expand to different markets. And most entrepreneurs are very, are universally um, open that way. Maybe not all, but most that I've come across are. And so I, I'm a big promoter of peace through entrepreneurship. That's my, that's my most recent message. That's the, that's the new message I've come to as of late. I mean, I think, again, I think entrepreneurship is good for so many things, the economy for, for, for self-fulfillment, but also for peace and for positive social impact. Yeah, that's, that's never, you really, you really changed my scope of entrepreneurship because to me, it's beneficial to the individual, right? I see it in a lot of people, you know, you feel more fulfilled, you feel like what you're talking about, the creativity and the, you know, the experiences and the ups and the downs, but I mean, you're very big picture and I, and I, and I, and I see that more than ever now. Um, that's, it's incredible. It's incredible to think and to know that this is a solution, right? It, it's, I, I, I fully believe in that 100%. And well, I hope it's a solution. I don't know if we have any real case studies yet on it, but I hope <laughs> I mean, I know that there are people in the in, in Israel and Palestine that hope it's a solution. I, I know some people over there that are creating initiatives around facilitating collaboration between Israeli and Palestinian entrepreneurs. There's actually a volunteer-led program run by my new friend, Tumer Cohen. I met him in, in, in Tel Aviv, and the program is called Tech to Peace, and what it does is it holds two week long seminars for Israeli and Palestinian youth. And while teaching them tech skills like 3D printing and web development and app development, the, the group facilitates dialogue around conflict resolution. Um, and it's incredible because what they're, once what, what happens is, is as soon as young people get together and they start learning to code together or create games together and build things together, then they automatically think, oh, well, if you can do this with me and we get along this way, then you must have other interesting insights culturally and internationally and politically, and maybe it's worth hearing what you have to say, even though that it's been so ingrained in my brain that, you, that you're... <laughs> that you're the enemy or that that, that, they're, that the occupation is keeping us divided. So, um, you know, my colleagues that have built this program, it's very, very new. They've only done one seminar so far, but they're doing some more in, in the summer. But they've said that they've seen huge transitions and transformations among the young people who have participated. So um, I'm, I'm just, I'm a big, I, I love it. I love that they're using tech in such a positive way. Course. And, and again, like it really does start with the youth. So the fact that you're teaching, you know, these young people that, um, you know, technology is an amazing thing and, you know, you can connect with people around the world to help you and, and become, um, you know, greater and to help them become greater. It's a fascinating idea that has been manifested in thousands of ways. And, you know, I've seen it and you've seen it and, you know, it's, that's, I think that's what really does connect the world together. And, you know, but connection, I've also realized has some downsides to it. As amazing and as progressive technology has been and is becoming, um, do you see any pitfalls, pitfalls, or do you see any um, corrosives that could possibly happen in the future? Well, I don't know if I see anything corrosive necessarily, but I do see downsides. I mean, like anything that's available to mankind, human humans as humans, we have a propensity to use it for good and also to use it for bad. We have a propensity to use it to our advantage, and we also 
you know, are inclined to abuse it. <laughs> and so that's what happens with technology. You see that with social media, you see that with people on their phones, you see that when technology gets into the wrong hands. Um, but so, I mean, I think that the downside of it is that the dependency that's been placed on it, there's far too much dependency on it. And I think some people, at least in America and in many parts of Europe that I've visited or lived in, feel like they're just passively consuming the technology. They use technology every day. They use digital technology every day, but they don't necessarily feel empowered by it. They might feel like they're getting informed, but it's, it's really just a lot of chatter filling their brains. Um, so it's, it's really not the technology's fault though, obviously. It's just a mindset shift that needs to take place within the individual. And that's not an easy thing because we're, we've been conditioned by these products to just use them all the time because that's what the advertisers and that's what the product developers want. Um, but it's really a personal development issue, I think. Um, you know, the book I'm writing is going to focus on technology in the next wave of global activism, but it's not solely written for people who want to be tech social impact entrepreneurs. In fact, it's going to be written for everyday people that use technology every day and that want to feel more empowered by it and that want to understand how they contribute, how they can contribute to society more in an impactful way using apps and using their phone and learning about technologies that are available to them. Yeah, well anyone can make a difference regardless how small because when it's one person right it, one person can become 10 which becomes 30 Absolutely. 50 yeah. definitely um and you know i feel like that'll take a huge economic shift and the economic toll out of everything you've been seeing where do you see um the economy advancing uh with all of the connectivity and i guess and there has been a huge rise of causes being looked at and going okay we should really fix this um and people progressing in that way as well yeah well i mean i think just the internet social media has exposed more populations to what's going on in some of the most marginalized vulnerable communities of the world mm -hmm. it's exposed the vulnerabilities that we're what that our neighbors are facing and that has inspired some people to act um you know some more than others but so there's there is definitely a rush of um media campaigning and and social activism more than more than we've seen it i guess in in previous at least in my lifetime more than i've seen it i mean it, uh, in my lifetime it for the most part, a lot of, I've seen a lot of complacency. You know, a lot of people have been complacent. And I think with mm -hmm. the election of, of President Trump and with, with the refugee crisis and with the issues around immigration, um, people are not complacent anymore. They're, they're realizing that there's, they're seeing the injustice and they're feeling affected by it and they're feeling their hearts moved by it. And so technology has enabled them to access this information and to feel like they can do something about it, even if it is just slacktivism, just liking something or posting something. It's at least informing people. Um, but, um, but there are ways that people can actually be even more empowered by you know, using the technology to elevate the conversation and to drive the action. I mean, technology is really just a tool. It's not a panacea for anything. And the other thing too is that um, there are situations in international development and in social impact where technology is not the answer. So as much as I'm an advocate of the intersection of tech and social good, um, I, I want to emphasize that digital technology is not the answer for everything. Sometimes it's the 
low tech or no tech solution. And what I mean by that is what I mean by that is sometimes it's paper. Sometimes it's you know sometimes it's sometimes it's it's going by foot. Sometimes it's messaging things by a carrier. Sometimes it's writing things down in the dirt and their sand. Sometimes you know some but that that's technology. It's just not digital technology. Yeah. Have you ever come across that uh, situation where like technology wasn't the answer and so you'd have to uh, readjust? Um, I haven't come across it right necessarily in my own practices or anything that I'm developing, yeah. but I do know people who have done it. I mean, because if you're looking for, say you're doing a study on what indigenous people in Ecuador need and what they're going through, they don't have phones and they don't have laptops, <laughs> and they don't have iPads. And sometimes, you know, you just have to do everything manually and in, in, in a different way. And so um, digital technology is not always the answer. The thing is, too, in the international development community, um, I don't necessarily work in international development per se, but I'm very close to it from my social impact work. A lot of my friends and colleagues in that space um, have said that they come across what they call pilot-itis. So when mobile technology started infiltrating the ecosystems, um, you know, everybody started these mobile health programs and mobile education programs, which are, a lot of them are phenomenal. Some of the work that's being done in Africa or in, um, in other parts of the world. But so, there are so many pilots too that have been done, mobile pilots, and then they, they start and then they never get anywhere because they weren't successful or they didn't have enough funding to get off the ground. And so friends of mine were calling it pilotitis, where everybody's just trying to build a mobile pilot because that's the thing. You know, and um, that's happening too, actually, with other technologies like like blockchain technology. Um, are you familiar with blockchain at all? I am. Um, I remember meeting you at uh, the United Nations conference last October, and that was a very hot topic. Was cryptocurrency and blockchain? Yeah, I mean, I I'm a big believer of what blockchain can and more than likely ultimately will do for society. I think it will okay. create entirely new infrastructure for a lot of industries and potentially the government. It's going to be a long time before that happens. But um, as a journalist I, who writes about startups, I get pitched a lot of blockchain startups. And some of these startups are just using blockchain because they want to create a token and do an ICO and make money that way. Um, they're, they're not necessarily creating a solution. So I, I've seen some movie review sites and food review sites using blockchain and I just, I don't, they don't need it. I don't understand what they're doing. But I, um, I recently went to the Zachary refugee camp in Jordan. I went there in January. That's the largest Syrian refugee camp. About 80,000 people are there, I think. And they, um, the World Food Program implemented a blockchain solution that allows residents there to pay for food at the grocery store um, just using their iris. It's, it's biometrics. They scan the iris and then they do a cash transfer um, that, you know, through the blockchain basically. Um, so it, it's providing them with an identity and providing with them with a cash transfer mechanism. Um, the, you know, the iris scan thing scares me a little bit, not necessarily in this instance, but just in other instances because we are getting more, we are moving a lot more of in, industries and places are moving toward that, which uh, I mean, privacy is just dead, so I don't know if I, it's even worth being concerned about it. <laughs> what I like about that particular use of blockchain is that it really works. It's a very elegant solution, and it allowed the World Food Program to cut costs because they don't have to go through the banks to allow the refugees to do cash transfers. And it's creating an identity system for the refugees. So they can go into the Safeway in the Zatari refugee camp, there's a Safeway and then there's a second grocery store as well. I forgot what it's called. But they can go in there and it takes them just a second to pay for their, their food. 
Um, and I love it because I think it can be replicated in other communities. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they might do with it. Yeah, of course. And I didn't even know that that exists. That's first off, that's amazing. Like how technology is advancing and helping populations and um, really being a benefit to society is, is such a phenomenal thing to watch. Um, but I, I love your note of um, privacy being dead because you're right. You're totally right. Privacy is going to be dead. But do you see in the future, um, how, how would I put it, like anti anti-privacy like you know re-securing privacy do you think that's going to be a huge market well, soon? No, I, shouldn't say, not care? I shouldn't say privacy is dead like i don't care because i do care i mean the gdpr <laughs> act was instated and and i think that's i don't know how much that's helping just yet it's too new to tell but that there's a lot of things gdpr is doing but essentially it's mandating that companies are more clear with what's secure and what's not. When you opt in their websites, when you sign up for something, when you buy buy products. And it does a lot of other things too. It's mandating that companies, um, you know, just are, are more clear with their data and their privacy rights and everything. Um, but um, I think, you know, back to blockchain, while I think it, we've got a long time coming before this happens, um, if there is enough emphasis in different communities and money is invested, are invested into decentralization, um, there's a lot being done around uh, privacy and decentralized networks via blockchain. So and this is very important to a lot of people. And if, if we have a decentralized economy, then privacy will be put more back into the hands of the people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, we, we still don't know. Scaling blockchain is still really difficult. So we'll, it's still a very new technology in many ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see that progress regardless because there is some great ways to be implemented and there's not because I've seen a couple of things happen with blockchain. Like it was the Silk Road, I believe, that really helped, you know, lessen the name of what blockchain can do because it can be so beneficial. But, you know, as as much as the technology is so amazing for so many different ways, one of them being privacy, um, I've known a lot of people that are like, you know, so, you know, like, so what they have my data, you know, it doesn't really matter very much. And, you know, I'm like, you know, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. So well, there's also, hmm? sorry, there's also um, a couple of companies out there that are um, creating platforms so that people can manage and own their own data. Oh, wow. um, one of them is called DigiMe. It's D-I-G-I dot M-E. That's the website. So I met them in Iceland at Startup Iceland, and they were doing the pilot program there in Reykjavik. They're actually a UK company, but they decided to do the pilot program in Iceland. I think, you know, probably because Iceland is so progressive, they're the gender equality leader of the world. They're a small economy. They're very open to trying technology for new things. They, they, I mean, they had their the, the rewrite of their constitution crowdsourced by the Icelandic people. So they're very progressive in that way. I think Scandinavian countries in general are light years ahead of the United States when it comes to, 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 um, progression or being progressive um so the the program was launched in um iceland but i think it spread since then this was maybe a little over a year ago that it happened but there are other companies too that they're they're creating ways so that people can manage and own their own health data their financial data and their social media data um and then i don't think they're using blockchain but there are a couple other blockchain companies doing this as well so there's a lot of there's initiatives going on among startups and i think we'll see more of those happening in the private sector in the future definitely you know um and we've been touching on a lot of um humanitarian um 
well, not humanitarian crises, but crises that need humanitarian aid. Uh, have you, you know, being in this field and being so well versed in this field, have you been seeing something or, you know, a crisis and, or something going wrong that really needs more attention, but hasn't been really put in the spotlight as much? Oh, well, I think the crisis in Venezuela is mm. out of hand and I really don't know that much about it, but I know that it's bad <laughs> and uh, the media has been giving it some attention, but not nearly enough. And um, I just received an email today from somebody just landed my inbox uh, pitch about this app called Zello, which is, I think they're an Austin based company and they're like a walkie talkie type uh, messaging system that allows people to communicate really easily. And it was very helpful during, um, during Hurricane Irma, was it? Am I saying that? And um, it's been very useful among people in Venezuela. Um, and so uh, I thought that was interesting. They, I can't do the story right now, but I thought it was great the way that that, that app is being used. So I would like to see more attention on, on Venezuela. I mean, Yemen, Yemen comes in and out of the news every so often, you know, every couple of weeks, you'll see pictures of, of starving children in Yemen, but then it goes away and then it comes back. It just depends on how much the media decides to focus on what Trump tweeted that day instead. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, but that's a whole nother conversation, my views on the way the media is handling things. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, listen, there's, there's, there's news every day that does not see the light of day. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked in mainstream news for a long time and, and I, I love journalists and I still love what, what the news can do and how it can instigate movements. And, but, um, I think most mainstream media is in a lot of trouble right now. Um, uh, you know, and so I think things from Venezuela, I mean, even, even immigration, it's, that's talked about more it's kind of a trendy thing to talk about now the importance of of allowing immigrants into the world but it's only a matter of time before or not into the world but into your you know into your country but it's only a matter of time before another story takes over and then they stop talking about it um, oh, yeah. yeah i mean i think that's the big that's the big trouble because you know the news is <clears throat> it's so fast and with technology well not even with technology just the dopamine of of you know all this news coming in and every day it's this or every even on twitter like every so hours it's a new story constantly uh, happening it's really difficult to keep track of these things and oh you know people <clears throat> people aren't going to care about what's going on over here but you know what did happen like right just now like something happened with this dog we should do this instead and you know and I think that's I think that's one thing that um, a lot of people do want to see change. A lot of people are wanting, you know, quote unquote, you know, not fake news. You know, people want to know what's going on. People want to have this real uh, understanding of their surroundings and what's going on. But you know, that need hasn't really been fulfilled um, out of what I've seen yet. No, I mean, I think that um, the way the way that it's being covered, whether you're on the right or the left or on the center. Um, everybody's just arguing a different argument for uh, the same argument from a different side and without really showing other views and that's everything from like the Me Too movement to Trump to a bunch to I mean those are the two main things that I have a problem with with it being covered um, but uh, but I don't want to stray too far off topic <laughs> no worries uh, no. you know I you know I really want to be respectful of your time um, and I have one last question you know You've traveled the world, you've seen so many things in many different places. Um, you know, 
younger kids, we're just starting out. We're just emerging, not on, not into our own selves, but to the world. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for all of us young people that might not know what we want to do or, you know, we're trying to find our way or we want to start our own business? Um, what, what advice can you lend to us? You know, I was just going to say something, but I think Steve Jobs said it in his commence- his famous commencement speech. Um, so I don't want people, I don't want your listeners to think that I'm copying Steve Jobs, for God's sake. <laughs> um, you know, although I could be, you know, obviously he's, he's one of the most um, brilliant icons ever, but um, but you know, but what I will say is stay curious. So he says, I think he says, stay curious in his speech. Oh. And I, well, think I don't know. Really, he says something if, like that. I, I thought <laughs> it was think, is it think different? No, well, that's the, that was the slogan of Apple for many years, years oh. ago. I think he says, stay curious and stay hungry in his commencement speech that he gave at a university. I think it was Stanford. I'm not sure. We'll have to, you can, you can fact check it for me either way. <laughs> stay curious Cause I think it's a perfect thing to say. Um, for, for young people, but for any, any age group, um, because curiosity is what curiosity kills fear. You know, the greatest, the most destructive force that we have in the world within ourselves, within our personal relationships, within communities and with, um, within across countries is fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's fear of fear of being taken over. It's fear of not being understood. It's, it's fear of being rejected. We, we carry these fears and if we could replace all of that with curiosity, um, so much would be solved. <laughs> you know, in your day-to-day life, when you're talking to somebody new on the street, or when you're when you're talking with a teacher and you're you're afraid of turning something in, or you're afraid of asking a question, or in a relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it's fear that destroys everything. And and um, it's not an easy choice. It's 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 not an easy transition to make to switch to curiosity because when you're in that moment of fear, it's consuming. Um, and that's the same for people on a day-to-day basis, but it's also the same for leaders of countries. It's the same for people, um, you know, that are traveling. It's the same for people in the news that are doing great things. It's if, if fear overcomes us, it, that's what, that's what ultimately drives us apart. And so, um, you know, curiosity, I would say, I would say travel every opportunity you get. Um, I'm very, very privileged and fortunate to be able to work remotely and be in Venice, Italy doing my job or be in Botswana doing my job or be in Palestine doing my job because I can, I'm a writer and I can write from anywhere and I've, I've cultivated the kind of lifestyle where I have nothing but freedom. I have so much freedom I don't even know what to do with it. And that's really great for me, yay go me, but not everybody has that. You know, not everybody has, a lot of people have children or a lot of people have, have <laughs> jobs where they have to show up and be at that office every day or they have different responsibilities that keep them very stationary and or they just don't have the funds or the means to travel. And um, I would love to be able to create some kind of universal funding fund or, or passport for people so they can at least once or twice a year go wherever they want. And honestly, traveling has been to me the biggest, the greatest educator of my life. Um, it's, it's been the most eye-opening thing. Um, going to Lebanon the first time was probably the most exciting, um, life-affirming thing I've done because that exposed me to the entrepreneurs there and exposed me to a group of people that are creating companies all in service of their community. And then that's what led me to exploring other parts of the Middle East and North Africa. And I never had any interest in that region of the world. I just knew that they had all kinds of problems and there was a lot of shit going on and that there were all... <laughs> And but there's a such there's a completely different side to those countries. You know, they, it's the Middle East is the most misrepresented, misunderstood part of the world. And I think I love it so much because 
because I, I, I love discovering how, how it's not those things, how it, how it is, it does have those things on the surface, but that there's this whole other level and, and so many other deeper parts to it. And I just fall in love with the people, the people, like I said, have so much resilience and heart and passion. And, um, and I want to see, help them see their entrepreneurial communities grow. Um, so stay curious, travel, ask questions. Um, if you have an idea, even no, if you think it's crazy and ridiculous, it's probably the best idea you're going to have. And it's probably the one that's going <laughs> to When my friends and I get together and drink wine, we're all, all my girlfriends and I are entrepreneurs. We, we're building our companies and our agencies or whatever they are, startups. And sometimes we'll just goof around and come up with random ideas that sound ridiculous, but they're probably the most mainstream commercial idea that will sell. And I said, you know, these are the things we should be focusing on. <laughs> we'll probably have so much investor money if we do these other things. Um, but sometimes, you know, young entrepreneurs approach me and they ask, well, what do I do if I have an idea, but I don't know how to get, get started. And then I say, did you write out the idea? Did you write a summary of the idea? Did you write it out? No, I haven't done it. Write it out. First of all, um, some people say, well, I can't write. Everybody can write. Not everybody is a brilliant writer, but everybody can write and everybody has a voice. I always encourage people to write, even if it's just for your own personal use, youth, whether it's blogging for yourself and not sharing the blog publicly or journaling. Um, I journal every morning, three pages, free flow, stream of consciousness. That's uh, one of the things that um, the artist way, which is a 12 step program has you do it, it. That's a program to help people tap into their creativity. Um, so I would say, you know, ideas, if you have an idea, write it out and try it. And if you, if you start it and then it goes away and it never comes back, it, that idea might've gone to someone else. Um, there's a book written by an author named Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And she wrote another book called um, Big Magic. And it's about creativity and how to, how to hone your creativity and how to develop your ideas. And it's, you know, really great, simple read. And she believes that our ideas are, you know, they're energy, they're like relationships with people. And that when we they stay with us, they're still ours to create. If you have an idea and then it, you, you, know, you just can't do it, you're busy, you're applying for college, whatever, you've got rugby, you're having problems with your boyfriend, whatever it is, you know, issues with your parents, they're not understanding you, whatever it is, you know, things get in the way, life gets in the way sometimes. And so your, your great idea might not get the attention it deserves, but if a year later, it's still there, that's, it's still yours to make. And all you have to do is take one little step. You know, I, I, I remember reading an article once about um, a woman who said, oh, I wanna start a jewelry boutique and a, make a jewelry line, but I, I don't know how, and I've got, I just got divorced, and I've got a mortgage, and I have to take care of my kids. And a friend said to her, I want you to just once a week do one thing to help you get closer to your goal. And she said, but how can I even do this? I don't have the money. I don't have a business plan. What can I do? And her friend said, go out and buy some string and some beads and put them together. And she did that, and she made her first piece of jewelry, and that was all she needed to start building and start realizing that she's fully capable of of, of starting her idea in a small way. So um, let's go over these. Stay curious, travel, write out your idea, do anything you can do. It's just incrementally, just little steps to create, to, to bring your idea to life. Because if you, you have it, you know, your ideas need you as much as you need them. Um, I, I, I think of ideas almost as people. They're, they're, there to, they're there to tell us something. They're there because they want us to help bring them into the world. Wow. You've, You've hit, yeah, oh my gosh. I mean, everything you've just said is, you know, I've never heard it been told that way before. <laughs> like, no, I'm, I'm not getting very long winded. It was very long winded. <laughs> no, no, no. Those very, no, very beautiful and very, like when you're talking about 
you know how curiosity kills fear i've never i've never thought about that before and and see like honestly like i've i've been so thoroughly enjoyed having you on this podcast i've you know loved learning from you um and i hope that a lot of my audience takes the next step and further continues to learn from you um but i i loved your response and um melissa thank you so much for being on thank you so much